Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good evening, everyone. I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to the elders past and present. And I would like to extend my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people present here today. I'd also like to take a moment to remember that this has been a place of storytelling for millennia, a place of intellectual and imaginative labor. The work we are doing here today, and the pleasure and delight that I'm sure you will derive out of this session today, um, is not new, but exists in a long continuum here on this land where sovereignty has never been ceded. Welcome to the Sydney Writers' Festival 2023. My name is Rowana Gonsalves. I am delighted to be facilitating this conversation about Sri Lankan stories. The session sponsor for this event is the University of New South Wales. A big thank you to them. They happen to be my employers, too. <laughs> I am an Indian-Australian writer. I am not Sri Lankan. And I'm quite conscious that I may be seen as yet another Indian meddling in Sri Lankan affairs and Sri Lankan <laughs> stories. However, that is not my intention. My intention is to inhabit the position of a curious reader. I'm going to introduce our panelists, and then I would um, like to contextualize this moment a little before I ask questions of our panelists. And I will ask them questions that came up for me as I read or watched their work. So different. Each of the works um, are so different from each other in every possible way. But with your help, we will make it work. Um, towards the end of our conversation, I will open up the session to questions from you, the audience. And after the session, the authors will be available for book signings in the main foyer. I think it's Bay 22. As Shakti Dharan was meant to join us, but unfortunately, he's unwell. In his place, we have his mum, who, who is, in her own right, a very well-known figure in the field of dance, and also performed in the play that Shakti Dharan co-wrote and co-directed with Eamon Flack. Uh, in fact, the first play is really based on um, the lived experience of Anandvali. All right. I'd like to introduce our uh, panelists today. Shankari Chandran is an Australian Tamil lawyer and the author of Song of the Sun God, Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, and The Barrier. Song of the Sun God was long-listed for the International Dublin Literary Award and shortlisted for Sri Lanka's Fairway National Literary Award. Her short stories have been published in the Sweatshop Anthologies, Another Australia and Sweatshop Women, Volume 2, Shankari is the Deputy Chair of Writing New South Wales. And I have to say that Shankari's book, Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, has recently been long-listed for the Miles Franklin Award. Big congratulations, Shankari. (laughs) 
Anand Vali is a veteran classical Indian dancer. Um, I'm not going to read the whole mini biography that you sent us because she's extremely accomplished, but um, I'm only going to read what's on the website of the Sydney Writers' Festival, but she's open to questions later, so you can ask questions. Um, Anand Vali is a veteran classical Indian dancer with an international career spanning 45 years. Born in Sri Lanka, she performed as a young prodigy across India and Europe under the tutelage of dance luminaries from both the East and the West. Migrating to Australia in 1985, she founded Ling Lingalayam, Lingalayam Dance Academy in 1987 and the company in 1996. Lingalayam's work incorporates dance, live music, text, and design. Anandvali is deeply committed to advancing the course of Indian dance as well as the broader scope of artistic development in Australia. She has presented guest lectures, workshops, and taught dance and movement at the University of New South Wales, University of Sydney, and the Australian College of Physical Education. From 1999 to 2003, Anand Vali sat on the dance board of the then New South Wales Ministry for the Arts. Anand Vali continues exploring new directions and developments, collaborating with some of the finest national and international artists. And most recently, in November and December 2022, with Belvoir Street Theatre, Anand Vali was the pivotal actor and dancer in the production, The Jungle and the Sea, which won four awards at the Sydney Theatre Awards, including Best Main Stage Production. Welcome, Manandwali. And finally, we have someone here who won a prize. What was that prize again? Starts was it with the a Oscar B. or the Grammy? I'm not sure. Yeah, or both. <laughs> He's won the Oscar, the Grammy, the Nobel, and the Booker Prize. Uh, the Booker Prize, Shehan Karunatilaka, all the way, all the way from Sri Lanka. He won the Booker Prize in 2022 for his second novel, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. He's also the author of the award-winning Chinaman, The Legend of Pradeep Matthew, which was selected for the UK's 2022 Big Jubilee Read selection. I think that book also won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. Yes, it did. Uh, born in Sri Lanka, he studied in New Zealand and has lived and worked in London, Amsterdam, and Singapore. He lives in Colombo with his family, his guitars, and his unfinished stories. Um, so this panel has attracted a lot of attention from all of you here, sold out session, but also from different parts of the world. Um, Carol Andrade from Mumbai, who is a veteran journalist, editor, and now dean of St. Paul's Institute of Communications in Mumbai, India, said, oh, you're interviewing Shehan. It's such a wonderful book. Just conveying that to you. <laughs> and Vivek Menezes, who is the co-director of the Goa Literature Festival, said, ask him about the people's power movement in Sri Lanka and the storming of the palace. Okay. So, Vivek's always been trying to put me in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> he's, uh, he's Before I turn to our panelists, I'd like to spend a few minutes contextualizing this moment a little. So bear with me, because it's a moment to be celebrated when one of the biggest, the most loved, and one of the best writers' festivals in the world dedicates an entire session to Sri Lankan stories. It doesn't often happen anywhere in the world. And by showing up to this session, it's a sold-out session, you have shown that there is a need for more such sessions across the world. One of the most moving Sri Lankan stories, Sri Lankan-Australian stories of recent times, has been the home to Biloela, 
campaign for the Nadesalingam family. Priya, Nades, and the two children from Sri Lanka who were in immigration detention for many years and after a huge nationwide campaign were only granted visas quite recently when the Albanese government came to power. The story of the Nadesalingam family is, of course, a consequence of the long entrails of the civil war, which has infused the cultural production of the Sri Lankan diaspora in Australia and also, of course, great Sri Lankan writers who win Booker Prizes. We have a long history of literature, fiction, non-fiction, plays, films by writers of Sri Lankan origin in Australia, right from Uncle Ernest McIntyre, who is almost 90 years old now, um, to Professor Yasmin Gunaratne, who was the chair of English at Macquarie University in Sydney, to Chandani Lokuge, to the wonderful writer Rajat Sivanadasa, both novelists based in Melbourne, Janaka Malwata, a Brisbane-based poet, filmmaker Visakesa Chandrasekaram, the artist, performer, writer Jeeva Parthipan, the writer, curator, and reviewer Gary Parmanathan, the wonderful writer and educator Devika Brendan, who works between Australia and Sri Lanka, Channa Vikramasekara, Samantha Sirimane Haidt, emerging writers Hasita Adhikaryarachi, Kalhari Jayavira, writer and reviewer Luther Utayakumaran. And finally, of course, one of the greatest novelists working in the world today, uh, who is based here in Sydney, Michelle de Kretzer, who just last month won the prestigious International Rathbones Folio Prize in the UK for her latest novel, Scary Monsters. Um, that book is not particularly about Sri Lanka, but you could surmise that some of the characters might be. And I highly recommend all of Michelle de Kretzer's work. She's really a great prose stylist a prose stylist who refuses to restrict herself uh, and in many ways soars above the constrictions of the autobiographical and writes about all manner of time, place, circumstance, such as the French Revolution, lost dogs, crimes committed in Sri Lanka and in Sydney. All of this is to say that this moment here at the Sydney Writers' Festival exists because of all the work done by so many writers of the Sri Lankan diaspora in Australia. And of course, it helps when a Sri Lankan wins the Booker Prize. <laughs> uh, I would like to now turn to our panelists and perhaps ask um, Shankari to begin with a reading. And I have to say, like all good writers, they're doing exactly the opposite of what I thought they would do. So they're all reading from books that I thought they would not read from. But I will let Shankari contextualize uh, the, the passage that she's going to read. And, um, over to you, Shankari. Thanks, Rory. <coughs> sorry, as well. Um, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> so I'm reading from Song of the Sun God, which is my first novel, um, but it has been republished recently in Australia at the end of last year. And the, the scene that I am going to read from is set at the end of the Civil War, when um, Tamil people, the Tamil people, refugees in their own country by this stage, the violence was escalating and they were herded into um, regions, safe zones um, by the Sri Lankan government called the no-fire zones, and then they were fired upon. Everything ends. She had felt the end so many times. In the black ants of Gal Oya, the metallic darkness of a police station, the blood-soaked floor of the jungle camp, and now here. Here where children knew when and how to jump into bunkers at the first trilling of missiles 
the army said it wasn't using. They saw the earth shudder and list like the small fishing boats of their fathers, tossed by a careless ocean, heard the burst of sound that deafened for a moment, a beautiful, silent moment, followed by screaming. Some children, the younger ones, tried to clamber out, reaching for their parents if they had any, or those who'd carried them this far, who were not their parents, but someone to hold on to when they'd lost everyone else who'd ever held them before. The older children knew better. They stayed in the bunker and waited, stacked on top of each other like crumbled dry tea biscuits shoved back in a box. Here where they lined the children in lifeless rows and could not cover them because they needed the tarpaulins for shelter and the sheets for stretchers and the clothes for bandages. So the flies covered them and sometimes the mothers sat with them and wailed over them and beat their bodies in pain and anger and loss and more pain. They pushed the flies away, but the flies came back. They were hungry too. And when the shelling started again, mothers left their children because they had others to carry. The old carried the young, the young carried the youngest and the oldest. Sometimes the oldest just sat. They had run enough, they had seen enough. Or they carried themselves because despite all the life they'd had, they still wanted more. Sometimes mothers stayed with their children in lifeless rows if they had no one left to carry. They heard the familiar drum of mortar fire, like the heartbeat of the earth itself, except the beat was erratic and its inconsistency, which kept them guessing, jumping, ducking and running, became a consistency that they understood and learned to anticipate, or so they told themselves as they jumped, as they guessed, jumped, ducked and ran, because it made their deaths seem less random, less fickle, and their lives something they could control, even though they secretly knew they could control none of it. And the mothers wondered, is this how it ends? They clutched their wasted children around them and placed their wasted bodies over them. They took shelter under the carcasses of fallen trees and fallen people and fallen words of conventions signed in faraway cities by people who were certain they would see sunset and sunrise and another sunset and sunrise and thousands more. And they were angry, not because they'd lost their husbands and their homes and their homeland, but because now they would lose their children. They knew a maddening terror, a chaos in their minds, a surge of adrenaline and vomit and urine, because they knew their children would die. The mother and the farmer and the teacher and the man who drove an auto and had never missed a day of work ran with the doctor and the mechanic and the woman who sewed dresses and secretly loved her sister's husband. They all looked the same now, clothing torn, feet shredded, bodies covered in the red-brown dust of their village and all the pounded villages they'd marched through, the muck of the jungles, the red of, flesh, of fresh blood and the smelly black of old wounds. They'd often done their best and sometimes their worst. They'd lived as their parents and priests and teachers and the Gita had told them they should. And now they would die as no one had told them they would. Scattered, terrified and wondering why them? Why like this? Why now when so much of life before was suffering and so much of life ahead was unfinished? And when the sky rained fire, 
They wondered if the sun itself had been shelled and broken into a thousand incandescent stars that now sought the soothing waters of the lagoon they were trying to cross. They gagged on muddy water and pushed through the tangle of bodies that floated and cluttered their path. They looked up at the sun and felt it thunder down in disbelief. Thank you. Thank you, Shankari, for that beautiful reading. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about writing that book and your other books and why you wanted to tell these stories. Um, so with Song of the Sun God, I, you know, when 2009 happened, when the end of the war happened, it was, it was incredibly, it was incredibly bloody. It was incredibly brutal, as, as all wars are, and this war was no different. And tens of thousands of Tamil people were, you know, herded and trapped in a region, and then they were slaughtered. And there, it was clear that there would be no justice for them, um, for the living or for the dead in Sri Lanka, and that there would be no justice for them in an international court, in, a, in the International Criminal Court. And I was so filled with grief, Rowana, and rage and guilt that we had survived and that our lives were so much better, um, and more rage. And I wanted to prosecute what had happened. I am a lawyer and not really a writer. Um, and I wanted to prosecute what had happened through fiction through storytelling. Um, and so this was my attempt to say, you know, you've, you've done this, you've hidden the bodies and you've hidden, hidden the evidence and you have a certain narrative, but this is not what happens to us and this is where, in fiction, I would like to hold the truth. Um, and then that was my first novel and then my, um, I wrote really in order to recover from the... the the vicarious trauma was not my own trauma, the vicarious trauma of, of other people's lived experience. Um, I then literally wrote for fun a post-apocalyptic novel set in a world destroyed by religious wars and, and a global pandemic. Um, and that was actually, I, mean, I, I say it flippantly and it's not possible to say it seriously, but that is actually a lot of fun to write after you've immersed yourself in a real genocide um, that your own people have lived through. And so um, after I wrote that novel, I then um, wrote a, a thriller set in, at the end of Sri Lanka's civil war about a, um, a journalist who was assassinated, was executed on the streets of Colombo based on a real-life journalist that we all know. And um, it, it's a political thriller about the, the role of international governments the, and superpowers and their intervention and non-intervention and the agenda that they run in regions, particularly in Sri Lanka. And no one wanted to publish it. Surprise, surprise. Um, and so then I figured no one's ever going to read my work, right? So it's not published. So now I'll just write whatever I want. Um, and so then I wrote, I finally felt ready to write a novel about Sri Lanka and about Australia, my ancestral home and my chosen home, in which I looked at both countries and I looked at what it means to be Sri Lankan Tamil and what it means to be Australian and who gets to decide the ways in which historical narratives and cultural narratives are appropriated and manipulated and changed in order to tell a story about the formation of Sri Lanka and the formation of Australia that includes some of us but excludes others 
Thank you. Thank you, Shankar. Anand Vali, would you like to read from, I think we have a copy here of Counting yes, and Cracking. Yes, Counting and Cracking. And if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about, just contextualizing the passage that you're about to read. Before or after I read it? It's up to you. Um, the, the, the few paras I've chosen to read are Act 3, The End of Counting and Cracking. The play revolves around Radha and her son Siddhartha. <clears throat> Radha is deeply in love with Ceylon, and never in her dreams did she believe that she would leave this country. Let me read this before I do more damage. Radha, we lived on Milagri Avenue in Colombo in a house your great-grandfather built. Our neighbors were Arif Mama and Salva Mami. During Ramadan, every night, they would bring over food, and your great-grandmother and Nihinsa would serve a small feast in, our, in their honor. Everyone gathered on the porch, not just Arif and Salva, but also our dear friends, the Gunatilakas, the Van Langenbergs, and Kundavi Mami from down the road, even Bala, the fruit seller from Jaffna. That was Sri Lanka. That was my Ceylon. Your great-grandparents built a home, a whole world around us. They protect, protected us within its walls. Growing up, I thought we were, and that it was indestructible. But it wasn't. What we had built was fragile. So fragile, it was being worn down, brick by brick, until one day, people were turning around and killing the person on their left, on their right, the person in front, or the person behind you. Then Hansa told me, your father too was dead. And I, it was like the air itself had become poison. How could Sri Lanka do this to me? The country had broken my heart. When I got on the plane to Australia, I promised myself that I would protect you, that I would build walls so high around you that we would be indestructible again. But I can't. I can't protect you. Radha gives Siddhartha an article. This article was published in the leader newspaper today in Sri Lanka. Read it. And for God's sake, don't ask me why. But why? Don't ask me why. Listen. This article from the main independent paper in Sri Lanka was written by the man who freed your father. Siddhartha says, Tiru was freed by a journalist. Radha, read the article. It's a man called... Hasanga. Radha pronounces the word Hasanga. Radha says, we used to call him Hansa. Hasa. Hasa. I spoke to him on the phone. Yes, Siddhartha. Amma. Radha says, read it, Siddhartha. Siddhartha reads. No other profession calls on his practitioners to lay down their lives save the armed forces and, in Sri Lanka, journalism. Our stories serve as a mirror in which the public can see itself without makeup or styling gel. 
From us, you learn the state of your nation. In the course of the past few years, countless journalists have been harassed, threatened, and killed. It has been my honor to belong to all these categories, and now especially the last. Siddhartha says, is he saying, Raga, two nights ago, Hassa was hit many times in a drive-by shooting. I've called his family and sent our condolences. Today, Raga says, you know, Siddhartha, I do all sorts of things before you even wake up. Keep reading. Why do we do it? After all, I have friends. I have family. Is it worth the risk? Many people tell me it's not. Finally, she says, I love Sri Lanka. I still do. Not just the people, but the land itself. I miss it every day. You know, if I had stayed for just one more week, I might never have left. Most probably, I would not have left. Siddhartha says, why? She says, if not for you. And that's why I left Sri Lanka. Oh. Is... Thank you. Thank you, Anandvali. And those tears are the tears of the diaspora, the first generation immigrants. And that's what yeah. gives me great pride to see this. Shehan, Shankri, my son, Shaktidharan, is that we lived that war. And we didn't just live it, we blinded ourselves to it. No? Yeah. I think in many ways we ran away. I ran away because I couldn't face what my countrymen were doing to each other. This is paradise on earth. It was paradise on earth. But when counting and cracking happened, and I had to face it, face the words my son had written, and it brought to the fore what I had seen and what I had indirectly experienced, I realized that I was also extremely ashamed of myself. Ashamed that we had let this happen. How do people kill each other? As I said, you know, it only takes for you to look at the person in front of you, behind you, on either side of you. Aren't we capable of protecting that much? How do you take cleavers and kill another human being? And this is a country where we knew no religion. I didn't. I was a Tamil. My mother had a humongous potu, but she never preached Hinduism. I danced Hinduism. Yeah. But we grew up in a society that had no religion. Mm -hmm. It was Ceylon. We were the people of Ceylon. Yes. Thank you. There's so many resonances, of course, with the, with, between the work of um, Shakti's work, it which is, is really is. influenced by your lived experience. No, but it's not directly mine. Mine came much later because I didn't speak to him. I didn't right. want to speak to him. Yeah. It came because of his research and family that sat down and talked to him. Yeah, and then much later, when the script started yeah. emerging, mm. I was asked questions, and as he always said, it's easier for Amma to speak to strangers mm. than to talk to me. So that's where the story started coming out. Yeah. Thank you. Shehan. Um, was, 
I thought Shehan would read from The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, but you've chosen to read from your first novel. Um, would you like to tell us why? <laughs> Can I just say, Rowan is never going to do a panel with a bunch of Sri Lankans again. Um, I'm a bit sick and tired of Seven Moons, but... Uh, no. But uh, please uh, go and buy the book uh, after this. Please, please go and buy the book, yes. Um, no, I... I've read, I mean, I've been on a, they made me work at the Sydney Writers' Festival, so I've been at a few pan, panels, and I've, I've read from Seven Moons, but... This is a panel is, to be yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but with this one, so, I just want to go back to my primary motivation for writing uh, the first book, Chinaman, The Legend of Pradeep Matthew. I wanted to write a book about Sri Lanka that does not mention the war. And, uh, that, and when I was also, look, I'm a... Singhala Buddhist uh, grew up in Colombo, insulated by the war, living in that Colombo bubble, which Mali Almeida yeah. complains about as yeah. well, and he feels guilt for that. Um, and, and I mean, that's his motivation for going out to these dangerous places, taking these photographs, because mm. he thinks if the Colombo bubble knew what was happening in the... Because the Colombo bubble, we went on. We watched cricket, we drank arak, we uh, wrote novels, and, uh, and pretended that the war was happening somewhere else. And um, when I got this idea for the first, uh, for the first book, I remember I, it was, um, yeah, so the mid-2000s. But I just felt that uh, writing about the war, I didn't know if I had permission to do it. I didn't know if I knew enough about it. And I also thought it was just appealing to me to write a story about characters who, uh, I mean, this is set in 1996 when we won the World Cup. Um, but also that was the height of the war. And to have these characters who actually sat around drinking Eric, watching cricket, and uh, the war, you know, it, it's there in the background, but it's not really, yeah, it's not really front and center like uh, Seven Moons. And I thought, is it possible to do that? Mm. And that, that was my challenge to myself, because a lot of Sri Lankan novels that I'd read at the time, um, that seemed to be the go-to subject. It's either, it's about the ethnic conflict, it's a... Uh, Star-crossed love story, uh, Tamil boy, Singhalese girl, and um, I just didn't feel that uh, I had the authority or anything to contribute there. And so I, so I wrote Chinaman about a left-arm leg spinner, a Chinaman bowler who was a genius and uh, who played for Sri Lanka in 1985, and therefore no one noticed him. He was better than Murali, he was better than Shane Warne, but no one noticed him. <laughs> and uh, for me, this was the appeal. But of course, the war and the politics did creep in. Um, and so this is the one passage where W.G. Karunasen, who's the drunk journalist who's going on this madcap quest to find this cricketer, uh, contemplates about politics. So I'll just give you a bit of context. So uh, there's a character called Johnny Gilhooli, who appears in yeah. Seven Moons as well. In Chinaman, he's just a guy who had a big TV and a satellite dish and who could broadcast all the test matches. So uh, uh, WG and his mate Ari would go to Johnny's house and um, um, not drink Eric because he had every sort of Glen, as he said. So they drink Glen Fiddich and watch Glen McGrath. And, um, and um, so Johnny's, Johnny was a bit of a, yeah. Uh, you find out more about Johnny and, and his true self in this book, mm. but in this one he was just a guy they watched cricket with. But anyway, Johnny uh, was an expat Englishman who lived in Sri Lanka for many years and um, built this luxury mansion, but he fell foul with the villagers and uh, they broke into his house and they shat in his pool. And, um, 
WG looks at these turds uh, swimming in this pool, and he thinks about Sri Lanka's ethnic conflict, as you do. And um, I'm just going to read that passage here. Um, it's titled Shades of Brown. Yeah. I am watching football with Johnny. This is a long time before allegations and excrement in pools. He's cursing people from Manchester, a city just a few hours' drive from his own. I ask him what is the difference between a Geordie and a Mank, and he starts explaining the accents, both of which I find equally incomprehensible. I ask him how many accents his little island has, and he demonstrates through famous sportsmen. He begins in Scotland with Kenny Dalglish, takes me through the northeast via Messrs. Boycott, Truman, and Clough. Then we visit Atherton's Manchester, the Midlands courtesy of Nigel Mansell, and end up in the east of London with Phil Tufnell. By the time he takes me to Wales via the great Gareth Edwards, my stomach aches from laughter. But I'm also amazed. One country, three nations, countless accents, but one united race. This was written way before Brexit, by the way. Um, yeah. Uh, the race of Britons united long enough to, you, to rule the world, at least for a while. As much as Kevin Keegan hates Sir Alex Ferguson, he doesn't refer to him as belonging to a different species. But sadly in Sri Lanka, that is exactly what we do. It is race and religion first, country last. Okay then, explain the differences between Sinhalese and Tamils, asked Johnny, and I am stumped. I could start with the stereotypes. Sinhalese are lazy, gullible bullies. Tamils are shrewd, organized, organized brown noses. Tamils have mustaches and chalk on their foreheads. Sinhalese are less dark, though not as fair as Muslims or Burgers. The Sinhala language is sing-songy. Tamil is more guttural. Tamil names end in consonants, Sinhalese in vowels. Tamils are Hindu, Sinhalese are Buddhist. Tamils mispronounce the word, the word baldia. Sinhalese eat kaum and don't like people getting ahead unless it is them. But all this tells you nothing. I can introduce you to a fair-skinned Tamil who speaks perfect Sinhala and follows the teachings of Christ and his mother. Or take you to a Tamil place that ends, that, Tamil places that end in vowels where you may visit a Sinhalese doctor named Kariya Wasam. Sri Lanka is filled with many shades of brown, not unlike the stuff that ended up in Johnny's pool. <laughs> it is not so much the colors as the ideas that these colors spawn that I find objectionable. The united super race of Britons may have started it all when they, among other things, segregated our cricket clubs. Though it is perhaps unfair and inaccurate to lay the blame for our racial problems on the streets of Downing or the palaces of Buckingham. Despite the existence of a Sinhalese sports club, a Tamil union, a Moors SC, a Burger Recreation Club, and the perversely christened Nondescripts Cricket Club, cricket as a sport refuses to be segregated. Clubs grab talent regardless of vowels or consonants or moustaches or chalk. So much for divide and conquer. By the 1950s, we, we begin to develop our own dangerous ideas without any foreign assistance. The idea that the nation belongs to the Sinhala, or that the Tamil deserves a separate state. Ideas that have clashed and exploded for the last 30 years.
Perhaps one day they will be replaced by an idea of Sri Lankanness that welcomes all shades of brown, though I suspect my generation will have to die to give birth to it. India got independence a year before us. They are larger, more diverse, and more excitable than us Silanese, but still embrace the idea of India above being a Bengali or a Sikh or a Muslim, something we have been incapable of doing. We are smaller in every way, including being smaller-minded. If I had to explain it, I would adopt the approach of a famous divide-and-conquer man, Mr. Rudyard Kipling. Sinhalese are slot bears, lethargic, cuddly creatures of modest brain who break things if riled. Tamils are carrion crows, resourceful creatures, resilient and peaceful, unless provoked. Forget this nonsense of lions and tigers, neither of which have lived in Sri Lanka for over a millennium. <laughs> But then I look at the shades, at, I look closely at the shades of brown, and I see interlocking patterns. The Tamil Zion is called Elam, which derives from the same Sanskrit word as Hela, the singular word for sovereignty. Men from both races gobble rice and acquire bellies at middle age. Women of both races oil their hair and spread malicious gossip. <laughs> both races can be equally feudal, equally cruel, and equally capable of turning on their own. Both can be proud to the point of stupidity. Explain the differences between Sinhalese and Tamils? I cannot. The truth is, whatever differences there may be, they are not large enough to burn down libraries, blow up banks, and send children onto minefields. They are not significant enough to waste hundreds of months firing millions of bullets into thousands of bodies. Thank you. Thank you, Sehan. Thank you. I loved the, the trenchant critique of nation-making and nation-breaking. And you write about, you write about um, really heavy traumatic things in a very light way, very skillful, light way. Uh, and in doing so, make the traumatic even more moving and affecting, I feel. And you, of course, do that so well in um, Mali Almeida, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that process of working with traumatic lived experience, Uh, witnessing trauma, remembering trauma, uh, imagining, you know, the, the work of the imagination as well, uh, working with that really heavy material and making something so light and beautiful with it. And I want to ask the same question of you, Shankari, and um, Anandvali too. How do you, what, what do you do as writers to help you get through this really heavy material that you're working with? So, I try to avoid heavy material. I wrote a cricket book, okay, there's a little passage about Singhalese and Tamils, but it's mostly a rollicking ride about Arak and cricket. And um, same intention for Seven Moons. I thought, okay, I want to write a really, a real pulp ghost story, uh, murder mystery. Um, and of course, I set it during 89, but that was the intention where the corpse is a detective beyond the grave solving their, their, their murder. Um, 
But what happened is I had a cast of ghosts. So I, I researched all the unsolved murders of 8990 and uh, many of these, many of the ghosts that appear in the book um, are based on true stories. But I think in earlier drafts, I had a vast cast of ghosts. Uh, there were dead child soldiers, dead Portuguese uh, sailors, dead, dead um, slaves from Nigambo. And in the end, we pruned it down. And so there's only a few ghosts. But the problem was the ghost started talking to me and the ghosts wouldn't shut up and they would just um, start philosophizing about Sri Lanka and talking about, yeah, talking about trauma and um, some of them were bitter, some of them were kind of uh, sanguine about it, but um, yeah, the ghosts end up rambling and the thing got mistaken for literature and uh, got awarded a prize <laughs> and that's what really happened there. Um, so I was, yeah. With both books, I wasn't really trying to write a political novel at all. Um, but these, when, the, when these voices spoke to me, I, I had to listen. And um, I think the use of humor is not, it's not like you write a grim tale and you inject jokes uh, afterwards in the edit. It was, I think, the choice of narrative voice. So with the first one, I was writing a cricket biography and I tried writing in the third person, but it was only when I decided that an alcoholic sports journalist, a drunken uncle would narrate this story that I was, it came alive and I was able to tell very tall tales. Um, and the same with, um, with Mali Almeida, it, it took different forms, but when I knew that this uh, dead war photographer, closeted uh, gay um, uh, gambler uh, was gonna narrate the story, I think his voice took over and he's got sort of this detached glib sense of humor yes. and um, you know he's a bit of a catty kind of closet queen a bit mm. bitchy and I think that helped me at least keep interested in writing it because he he's watching his corpse being uh, dismembered and chopped up and chucked in a river in like the in the in the lake the first scene but he still sees uh, he's still able to crack jokes about it or make some glib comments about it and I think Maybe that's my sensibility that I, I choose uh, narrators that have a sense of humor even though they're discussing dark things. But I also think it's maybe the Sri Lankan sensibility as well because despite we've had all this history of trauma, it's not a, you know, a grim, depressing place. You go there, it's quite a cheerful, happy-go-lucky, optimistic place, which is strange, you know, and I think, um, you know, I, and. Back to the cricket analogy, we watch our team lose uh, spectacularly all over the world and then suddenly we'll win a test match against South Africa, Australia, and it's like, yes, we're back and that, that opt and we keep watching the cricket and then watch us lose again. And um, it seems a metaphor for the, the political situation as well. Even, even last year, um, during the height of the Aragale, the struggle, uh, when uh, yeah, we were storming the president's palace and had petrol queues and all, all of that, the jokes never stopped. Uh, uh, I was following this not on BBC or CNN or even the local channels. I was following this on Twitter. And the memes kept going even, and even during that, those petrol queues, um, you know, four or five day petrol queues, uh, people were quite tense and anxious, but uh, they were also playing cards and uh, singing baila and cracking jokes about the government. And I think maybe this is our coping mechanism that we, uh, you know, we either laugh at each other or we punch each other. And uh, so better we laugh at each other and, uh, and get on with it. So I think uh, maybe that's where the humor comes in. But I think also that's what keeps me interested because I, if, if I did a realistic, non-fictional 
uh, piece on 89.90. It would make quite a grim, gruesome read, and I think um, being able to see the absurdity in it uh, actually helps me as a writer and perhaps helps a reader as well. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And part of the, that distancing effect that the humor uh, creates, I think, is also created by the in sorry in Mali Almeida in um, the Booker Prize winning book. It's created by the use of the second person. Mm. Um, so, so as I was reading, um, I just felt mm, it's making me feel complicit when I'm not, but it's also distancing me. So it was really interesting. Uh, position that you put the reader in, you as the author making the decision to use the second person. Um, and it just is a different experience of reading and of uh, reflecting upon uh, this, the, com the complex representation of um, trauma and war, and also, you know, this ghost who's watching his own uh, body be dismembered and, you know, all of the jokes that surround it. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that choice to write in the second person. Yes, that was just um, problem solving. What does a ghost sound like? What does a ghost look like? What does a ghost do all day? And um, yeah, I grappled with these complex questions. What does the afterlife look like? And um, I did write it in the third person. I wrote it in the first person, but... Um, I think what informed the decision was I figured the only thing that may survive the death of your body would be the voice in your head. And the voice in my head is in the second person. Yes. I don't know what everyone else's heads look like or what, what the voices in your head sound like. But for me, it's the second person. It's like someone else telling me uh, that I'm making a fool of myself or I, that I should shut up. And there's some, it's almost like someone on my shoulder telling uh, telling me this, and I think when I when I used it, um, also you know later you can rationalize it, but when when you're writing, you're writing on an instinctual level. And uh, before I knew it, I had twenty thirty pages in the second person, so I thought, oh God, looks like I'm going to have to write a novel in the second person. Um, and I was waiting for subsequent editors to tell me, yeah, this is very jarring. Let's change it. But um, yeah, no, no, everyone responded to it, um, and I think. Later, when I thought about it, um, it does give that distancing effect because the, the narrator who's saying you uh, is not quite the Mali Almeida who you see in flashbacks. Yeah. The Mali, and uh, Shivanta Vijay Singer, who did the audiobook, did a tremendous job. I, you know, I didn't talk to him before he did it, but I heard the results. He narrated... Uh, so when he does the narration in the second person and when he talks about Mali Almeida in flashback. It's a slightly different register mm, that he uses, yeah. and which I thought was amazing, and I think that's correct. So the, the, the person narrating the story is, is Mali Almeida, but is not quite the same guy who lived from 1950 to 1990. It could be the voice of his conscience, it could be the voice of his soul across different uh, reincarnations. And also he interrogates that. Who is the you telling the story? Mm. Who is the voice in your head? And I've often wondered that... Um, we always think that our thoughts originate from ourselves, but um, maybe there's someone else, some spirit sitting behind us whispering these bad ideas in our, in our ears because uh, there's been many times you do something, you think, what was I thinking? Why did I say that? And um, Mali Almeida also wonders, am I, am I the originator of my thoughts or is someone else whispering these bad ideas to me? But that old stuff came later. I think it initially just started with what does the voice in your head sound like? And uh, the second person seemed to work. 
Yeah, that's, that's really super interesting. It's that whole idea of the fragmentation of the voice and of subjectivity and also the, the accretion of layers of um, personhood, subjectivity, I suppose, identity. Mm. Yeah, really, really interesting. Mm. Shankari, I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about how your process in terms of, you know, trying to render on the page really, really difficult. As you said, vicarious trauma, but, you know, things that you, you said your people have gone through and continue to go through. So how did you um, work with the material that you have worked with mm. in your books? Yeah. So it's interesting that you say you, you wanted to write a novel that, a Sri Lanka novel that wasn't about the war and about trauma and politics. And I think sometimes it's very hard to be Tamil um, and to be Tamil in the diaspora or Tamil from Sri Lanka or in Sri Lanka and to not write about the politics and the war um, because that is why we're here. Right? That is why we have left um, and that is the struggle of the people that remain. And so the politics of it and the war is an, is an ongoing cellular feature of, of theirs and our lives. Um, and you carry that with you, as you should. And so when you talk about the levity, it, it's also fascinating to me because I think you're exactly right. You do that so beautifully, the, the, the levity that makes the tragedy even more tragic. Mm. Um, and I think in my work, the approach has been that the levity of it, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not a funny person. It's just... The, but the, the levity of the stories of both those two novels of Chai Time and Cinnamon Gardens and Song of the Sun God is in the craziness and the chaos of a Sri Lankan Tamil family or indeed a Sri Lankan family, right? Our families are large. They are, you know, oppressively interested in everything we do. Um, they are overly concerned with who we've married, when we're having children, how many children are we having, who will they marry? Um, you know, so, you know, to my grandmother's dying day, she would introduce me as her granddaughter that got into medicine but chose to do law. <laughs> so, you know, the, the humour and the levity is in who we are and how we live and how we treat each other. Um, and the trauma of it is, is in what we have also gone through. And these are inextricably linked. And so my approach in writing Sri Lanka and the, the Tamil struggle is I don't, I don't approach people and I don't ask people. Um, because it is their lived experience. And what I do do is, for example, when I go to Sri Lanka, and in particular when I go to Jaffna, um, you know, it's a small place, right? This peninsula that we are fighting over is a very small area of land. And when I go, um, everyone is known to each other, right, Auntie Wali? So when I go, people will, I will be with certain people, with priests and with doctors from Jaffna Hospital and so on. And so the community knows that I'm there and they will come and say, so you are here, you're Nadna Chandran's daughter. Um, and, you know, so I, I hear you're writing a book. It's a shame you didn't do medicine. <laughs> and so, you know, let me tell you this story. And so then they share their stories with me. So I don't approach them and I don't ask for the story. And then I tell them that, you know, I am writing, do you want your lived experiences? Because I'm going to hold this now for you. 
do you want that in to be woven into the fabric of the novel? And then, um, and, in, and in fact, in many ways, I don't have to ask. They ask me, but then I re-ask. So I think it's really important to re-ask and be sure that the person who is telling you their story understands the ways in which that story might um, be incorporated into the narrative that you are writing. Um, I, I think it's an incredible burden and privilege to carry that for people or to be a part of it, to listen to it and enormous courage that they have to, to share that story and to relive that trauma. I mean, I couldn't even make eye contact with Auntie Vali as she read that piece, reliving that trauma, right? And I, it's a privilege to, to, to listen to it and to then try to honor it in the stories that I write, in the books that I write. Um, and then, like, literally at the end of a day, if I'm writing that kind of work, hmm. then I will literally do a head count of the children because um, I like to know where they are and who they are, and now I have to track my daughter on her phone. Um, and, and sometimes then I like to sleep with them at the end of a, day, of a hard day of writing. I really need to just hold them and smell them and feel the rise and fall of their chest and hear it and touch it and know that it's safe. So true. Thank you. Uh, Anindvali, would you like to tell us a little bit? Oh, thank you. You were. Uh, I can't what share. What Shankri just said resonated yes, with. Yes, a lot. Uh, could I ask a question? How many in the audience actually saw the play Counting and Cracking? So I think there's enough in, enough people in the audience to understand what the play tried to say and did say. Um, it took my son 10 years for Counting and Cracking to reach the town hall in Sydney. And thanks to Belvoir and Eamon Flack, the two boys had a beautiful dream and they made it a reality. I sat through, I initially thought my son was an idiot. <laughs> uh, he always wanted to do journalism and he did very well. Many people offered him jobs which he said no to. My uncle, my brother, who is our rock, kept telling him to find a real job because he was brilliant. He always could. One of his professors said, I'm giving you 200 out of 100. And I'm only not giving you 200 because the writing is so unreadable. This was before. So he always had a passion for writing. He was always very good at it. And I didn't tell him the story of Sri Lanka because it's just too painful. And as I said, you try, tie a blindfold or you, and you live a life that you don't want to, uh, a line that you don't want to cross because it's too painful. But I started going for the counting and cracking readings and the initial script was like about that big. And then it got smaller and smaller and smaller and then it still became a three-hour script. So all the work he did in counting and cracking started with my aunt whom he dedicated the play to. Uh, sitting in London around her breakfast table she told him who he was, that he was so-and-so's grandson, Sisun Dilingam, the politician who, who quoted the word Ilam, and about his family, and about his mother, who was a dancer. All the stories I never told him. She told him about his legacy, about his history, and he couldn't believe what she was telling him. And from there, the seeds were sown, and little by little, he started researching 
He's very good at it, researching and listening to people's stories. And he became a bearer of those stories. I mean, everyone says counting and cracking is fiction, and so does he. But like the seven moons of Mali Almeida, I can tell you, 95% of that man's jokes are real. And it's so brilliantly written that you don't realize the trauma within those lines. It's so beautifully written. Same with this child and my son. They belong to a generation that took our burden, the wrongs of our forefathers, and now are making all of us accountable for it. And that I say thank you. Thank you, Anna. I am conscious that we have only a few minutes left, but I would like to open up uh, the floor to questions, if anyone has any questions to ask of our panelists. Um, so this question is for um, Ms. Shankari Chandran. Hi, I'm Sanjoy. <laughs> um, I remember that the most impactful part of your book for me was um, Smriti, Smriti remembering um, Nala being set on fire and the generational trauma that she carried within her without knowing. And when you talked about vicarious trauma, that really sort of cemented that connection for me. Could you tell us a little bit more about how your lived experiences impacted the work that you've done with the Song of the Sun God? How my lived experiences. So, sorry, what was your name again? Sanjali. Sanjali, sorry. Thank you, Sanjali, for the question. So the thing is, right, that I have had and am eternally grateful to my grandparents and extended family, and in particular, Amanapa, my parents, for the wonderful lived experience that we have had, that this generation of Tamils have had in the diaspora because of the choices and the sacrifices that they made. It is only through that that we have escaped that trauma and the lived experiences of those characters in those books. And so that, that's the first thing, right? And then the second thing is that when we are diasporic children, we feel, or maybe I will put that into the first person, I feel very, um, you're neither one nor the other, right? For most of my childhood and um, my early adulthood, I felt very unsure of, very trapped in the middle of something. Um, and observers to my parents' grief and observers to their guilt. And so our lifelong, you know, from childhood onwards, we were seeing them struggle with the fact that they had left and that they had survived. They wanted to leave, they wanted to survive, they did that for their children, but they carry with them enormous guilt and that manifests itself in different ways. So, you know, all of my father's side of the family are very motivated about the political struggle. And so that was very much part of my political consciousness was learning from them, but also witnessing their grief and their guilt. Um, and then I have worked as a lawyer with vulnerable clients, um, with trauma, um, with clients that have experienced great trauma. And so I've learned and been trained in how to work with clients like that. But I think nothing really prepares you to listen to somebody tell you about the horror of war 
and the loss of their children. Um, and, and then you just try to put words on a page to, to as I said, to try to honour that in some way and remember it. There's a beautiful line in your book where you talk about forgetting something does not erase it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, forgetting something does not erase it. I'm going to use that line, by the way. Um, it's going to be in the front of my next book, and I'm taking okay. your nodding as permission to use it. I, I forget having written that line, but yeah, that's fine. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah, so I think it's really important that we don't forget and that we learn from what we are meant to remember. Thanks, Anjali. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Um, it's interesting to hear that motivations behind being here and, and being involved in these artistic pieces were maybe denial and guilt, prosecution, or in, in discussing a narrative. And I guess when I read all of your work, um, it was the same time that I had my first baby. And um, it was nine months ago, and I was catapulted to this sort of idea where um, identity became a a big part of who I am. What do I tell my children? Where do I come from? And my background is Tamil Sri Lankan. Growing up in Australia, in, in history, geography, you learn about cross-generational uh, cross trauma and the Indigenous story. You learn about, um, you know, if you don't know where you come from, you don't know where you're going, um, as though the paramount of, like, in the, the massive issues in this country. But it kind of hit home to me and the, and the Sri Lankan people. And, and I'm here with my family. All of us are not the same type of Tamil or Sri Lankan. We are a sort of a, a mixture of both. And uh, it's so wonderful to be in this atmosphere and, and have these issues discussed in an Australian forum. How does it feel to be catapulted to now being advocates or, or these people now talking about political issues on the stage? Because that doesn't seem like that was your initial agenda. It doesn't seem like that's not what you wanted. Shahan, um, maybe to you, maybe? yeah. Um, yeah, what did you say, catapulted to what? You're uh, now an advocate. You're now, you're now a person that I'm talks no about issues. I'm no advocate for anything. No, no, I'm just the same rat bag who writes weird <laughs> stories. Um, that, that's, that's my uh, side of the street that I want to work on. And yeah, it has been challenging because, yeah, I sat, uh, I mean, Chinaman came out 10 years ago or more, and I've been writing this for seven years. And um, two years ago, no one wanted to publish it. And I thought, you know, I'm going to sit in Colombo or Kurunagal and write uh, in anonymity, and that's fine, and this is what writers choose. And yeah, since the events of October, I've been uh, traveling around talking about the book. And yeah, you do get, you, you do get asked... Um, I mean, with the first book, I was asked, uh, do Mahila and Sangha not get on? Is that why Sri Lanka can't win a World Cup? And I was like, how the hell should I know? Um, and now I'm being asked about, you know, slightly more uh, deadlier topics on it. And I've always, look, I have political beliefs, I have spiritual beliefs and all that, but I personally think it's irrelevant. I'd rather the books get famous. I have no desire to be famous myself or be a spokesperson for anything. But, um, yeah, so the questions do get thrown at me, and I try and sidestep them as well as I can. There's, there's plenty of political commentators. There's plenty of cricket fanatics in Sri Lanka, and um, I didn't see that, that I had to play that role. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's weird. It's weird. And so you, um, it's not that I don't care about uh, things to discuss it, but I don't feel that that's my place. So I, I'm quite uncomfortable with that role, and... Um, 
yeah, hopefully in six months there'll be a new Booker winner and I'll, <laughs> I can hand over my sash and my tiara to the next person but, and move on. But Shehan, you're always welcome to the Sydney Writers' Festival oh, yeah. again. Yeah. On that note, I would like to draw this session to a close. Thank you, everyone, for uh, spending your evening with us. Join me in thanking our lovely panellists. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.